So you see the indicative, this is true, leads to the imperative, this is what you do. So the truth and the command go together often, they're side by side, often through the writings of Paul. And for that matter, for uh, the writings of Je- uh, the teachings of Jesus as well. But they're very clear in the writings of Paul. So the, the chapter is based, uh, the book is basically divided into two, the supremacy of Christ, who spent a great deal of time looking at Colossians 1, 15 to about 23, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, that 
he holds all things together. That he is before all things and he is the creator of all things and he sustains all things. And that's a reminder for us then as we approach the Advent season, we're in the Advent season, we announce the Christmas message, the very one through whom all things were created, the very one who upholds all things by the power of his word, is the one who took on human flesh to be born in Bethlehem as an infant. And so when we talk about the humility of Christ, we talk about the condescension, if you were, of Christ, we need to understand what it is that we're talking about. And we're talking about something that is incredible. The mystery, as it were, of Christmas. How could God become man? And why did God become man? So, we got past the outline of the book and we began to talk, and this is where we left off. We talked about some of the important points of the book the supremacy of Christ in all things. Um, and let's just stop there then. For those that are new with us today or perhaps weren't here last week, let's summarize what we mean by the supremacy of Christ. Okay? And what are some ways he showed his supremacy in? Paul shows his supremacy uh, in the book of Colossians. Question again? Define, explain, give examples of the supremacy of Christ for those that were not here last week. In the book of Colossians, how does Paul show the supremacy of Christ? Made all things. He made all things? In 116, he's the image of the invisible God. Okay, the image of the invisible God, which we're going to spend eternity contemplating what that means. The image of the invisible God as we gaze upon him face to face. Will be what else? Holds all things together. He holds all things together. Okay? So if that's true, <laughs> he holds all things together. And of course, we take God at his word. If he holds all things together, then what does that do for your life situation right now? It's in his hands. In his hands. He's holding it together. He's not unaware. He's not disinterested. He's not overwhelmed. He's not in any way uh, waylaid by the fact that you've got some issues in your life. Okay? <laughs> yes, of course. Now that that's where so the, the fact is, so let's 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 take the indicative. He upholds all things. It, okay? He upholds all things. That's the indicative. What imperative be as a result? Trust me to do what I said I'll do. <laughs> Trust me to do what I'll say I'll do. In all things. In every situation. Right? Nothing escapes his reach. Nothing escapes his grasp. Nothing is outside of his ability. And we fall down at that point. Because we're trained and educated to be self-made man. <clears throat> To do things on your own, to not be weak and needy, to do things on our own strength, that we're going to we're going to be our own saviors. We may not use that language, but that is exactly how we are programmed by the culture, right? Yeah. And so it's at this point then that we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, need to hear He upholds all things. Because otherwise we become nervous wrecks, right? Otherwise we make poor decisions. Otherwise we are frenetic about life. We panic over decisions. We don't think through implications of things. He, he upholds it all. 
Yeah. Do you think some people just never think that? I mean, when you're, you know, I'm, I'm taking care of myself, life is good, it's me, 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 me. Eventually, that runs out too. You're like, wait a minute. You know, I mean, there's, there's something bigger than this. Yeah. Uh, does, does some people just never get to that point? Uh, well, since uh, <laughs> I haven't had the privilege of knowing everybody, you know, I, I would just say that we obviously have some people that live in blindness. They live, actually some people are quite happy in their own minds to live in their ignorance. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I was listening to, I, I, I don't quite recall this name, it's right on the tip of my tongue, but he's one of the most outspoken scientists, atheists in the world today. Harvard trained, dignified, well-spoken, educated. And I listened to him talk the other day about God. Okay, he's an atheist. <laughs> he defines God the way he wants it. And honestly, it was an ignorance. <laughs> He was an educated ignoramus because he really wasn't thinking through what he was actually saying. And in his argumentation, he was committing one logical fallacy after another. He was making assumptions and presumptions about things that first he needs to substantiate, but he hasn't. And also the fact that every one of his so-called objections are not new. <laughs> The church has been dealing with these objections for 2,000 years. And so I'm always amazed when people say, oh, like somehow it's a revelation that the church has never thought about the poor, or the church has never thought about someone that suffers, or the church has never thought about, well, this city had an earthquake, where is God? But somehow this is a new revelation. And this is a guy that's supposed to be educated and trained, has a PhD. And he was an educated ignorance. He really did not know even the fundamental things that I would hope everyone in this room could have responded to him. Okay? Because we know the one who holds all things together. We know the one through whom all things came and were made. And who is preeminent over all things. Okay? So, um, I, I intentionally used the word ignoramus. Okay? Because the alternate word is agnostic. But they're really the same thing. One is a Greek word, one is a Latin word. They mean the same thing. So next time somebody says to you, I'm an agnostic, you know what your response is. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're dynamic equivalents across two languages. They mean the same thing. We boast about what we don't know. Really? That doesn't seem like this is supposed to be from a position of knowledge. You boast about what you don't know. So, what else? Supremacy of Christ. How does Paul show us the preeminence of the supremacy of Christ? He said he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Ah, what's he mean he's the head of the church? First born. Means he's. He's God. He's <laughs> God. He's the head of the church. To whom must we all bend the knee in the church? Right? Uh, that means it really is about him and about serving him and about his purposes. And that's the claim that he makes on us, but that's also the right that he has in his saying as the head of the church. Hmm. Church history would look a little different 
if the church had actually acted as if Christ was the head of the church. So this is why we need to continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, right? And apply the gospel and repent and believe and turn back and listen to the word of God. Okay? Because he's made it clear. Other things that we see in the book of Colossians. All things are created through him and for him. All things are created through him and for him. So we would just combine that in with upholding all things, the head of all things, okay? That means then, if he created all things, right, through him and for him, what do we mean when we say he got lucky? Or it was just a random event. Or it was a coinkadinky. Okay? No such thing. We say providence. Huh? Say it would be providence. It's providence, right? Shows the providence. If he upholds all things, through him all things were made, and for him, upholds all things, there are no mistakes. That doesn't mean we'll have full understanding of why certain things happened. It just means we trust the one who does know and sees the beginning from the end. Yes? If Christ made all things and all things are good, then uh, we're expected to be stewards and take care of his creation. That concept can be and has been abused by people who use it. I'm thinking about the climate change advocates who Mm -hmm. want to destroy the economy. So let's just just take the principle, right? He created all things, through him all things were made for him, that, that all things were created good and for his glory, and we are to have dominion over those things, right? What often happens is what Romans says is that people know these things about God but suppress them, okay? Worshiping what? The created thing rather than the creator who is God right? So it's the sin then that corrupts it. So now I look at the beauty of creation, and rather than having my eyes lifted and adore the one who created all things, I start worshiping the created things themselves. And that's where we start to get up. We need to track. So, being a good steward of what he has given us is to honor him, right? We, we honor the giver by how we treat the gift. If all of life is a gift, if all of this world is a gift, if the friends that we have, the families that we have, are all gifts, we honor the giver by how we treat those gifts. Okay? Where we go sideways is because of our own sin nature where we start saying, well, I want to use those gifts for more. Yes. We don't have to be taught how to do that. We do that from the get-go. It's our nature. So if he's, you know, all things, it doesn't doesn't matter how we use what we have been given and for what purposes and who is affected by how we use what we've been given for his purposes. So, yeah. There's, there's real implications here. Okay? So let's let's move on. We looked at the, the, the supreme in all things that this had. And then the next one we looked at has a practical impact on our union with Christ. It, it, the impact, the fact that we are in Christ. And this week I asked you to kind of look at some of the ways that this impacts our life, right? I can go ahead and turn all your papers into the left and I'll collect them and grade them, right? You all get right? 
I did do your homework. Okay, so what difference does it make that we're united with Christ? Oh, we're set aside. Big difference. Okay, but practically, if we're in union with Christ, united with Christ, His death is our death, His resurrection is our resurrection, His ascension is our ascension, we will be seated with Him in the heavenlies. We are born again, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we have forgiveness, we're redeemed, we're His adopted children, He puts His Spirit within us. Okay, all of these things in our union with Christ, what difference should that make then in how we live individually with our families and with the greater family of God? My family knows that that's what we believe and that's how we live. And it's impacted them in a positive way. Okay. And I think it shows when we're around people we don't know. Our behavior and... There's multiple examples that we've experienced while we've been on this trip that were positive and show that we're with Jesus. Okay. So that's the difference it should make, right? The impact, yes. Doesn't it help us know what the mind of God is for purpose for our life? If we're, um, he talks about the mystery of God and um, if we're with when Christ then we and we're in that mindset then we don't know everything that God's thinking but we can know what purpose God has for us. Okay. Yes. Yes. To think his thoughts after him, to act according to what he says is reality, to let his truths penetrate our hearts so that we will live them and be affected by them. Yes, it will have a great impact. Um, in every situation. In our needs, in our wants, in our difficulties, in our victories, in our trials, when everything is floating along nicely, we'll look at all of that in a different way. If in fact, because we're united with Christ, and He is guiding us through those things. Okay. I think, I'm, for me, the biggest impact, or one of the biggest impact, is we're forgiven of our sins, and that is amazing. And. Um, and future sins too, which is still kind of hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah, so this is something for us, and Paul wants us in his writings to think about that. Because he talks about it in several of his letters about our union with Christ and the impact it's to have on us. Okay? So, deep theology that he is presenting about his greatness, the impact it should have on our lives, but then he's also aware that there's false teachings all around us. The folly of false teachings. And believe me, the world is very good at recognizing that which they see as something that is off from what their understanding of the gospel is. That's why the word hypocrisy gets thrown around a lot. It's recognized based on pronunciations that Christ has given, what Christians should be like. They don't see it all the time. So their first thing is hypocrisy. This is not to let them off the hook because they are idolatrous. They are turning after their own desires first. Okay? But even this early church, planted within just a couple of decades from when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, had deviated off into false teaching. They have a false understanding of Christ. We don't know exactly what 
if I had to guess, they had downplayed his humanity to upplay his deity, and in doing so, they had lost Jesus. They were Gnostics. They were emphasizing the spiritual over against the material, and God has created both. And by Christ taking on a human body, that is a very important statement about what he thinks about humanity. Okay? So, this is one where we have to be careful as believers because we can, <coughs> we can succumb to false teaching. So in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, that he's writing all these things. I know what you've been going through. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. These plausible arguments. They seem wise. Okay? Verse 8, he's already, we looked at this last week. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so we have those kind of things as well, that there is a certain way of thinking, there are certain traditions that come out of human tradition, human ways of thinking, but are not according to Christ. And it's at that point that oftentimes we're not aware of our blind spots. Because they seem normal to us. There are certain things that just seem normal, that seem true, that seem things to be the way they are. And then we encounter someone who is a believer, perhaps coming from somewhere else, and say, why are you doing that? And so we need, to, we need to be willing to listen at that point. Have I succumbed to human tradition? So all throughout chapter 2, he's talking about these things. He talks about the victory that is ours in Christ. And then in verse 16 to the end... He takes on human religion. He takes on human thinking. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And people will hang on to those things, questions of food or drink or religious festival or holy days, and they will actually start to quarrel over those things and pass judgment on each other over those things. Right? involved in part of those conversations. Not realizing, of course, that we're just doing what Paul said we would do if we're not operating according to the mind of Christ. Verse 17. These, what do these refer to? Everything he's just mentioned in verse 16. These are a what? Shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Most of us live in the shadows, or we try to, or we want to, because it's easy for us to define the shadows instead of Christ. And that becomes the argument that Christians have, this or this, this or this, this way or that way. And we argue about stuff that ends up being the shadows and forget the substance. Yeah. Back in verse 8, he talks about high-sounding nonsense from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. Is he talking about demonic forces, or what, what does he mean by the spiritual powers? Yeah, there's a big discussion of what that verse means. Um, so a good way of understanding would be the, in, in a sense, yeah, the common way of doing things, the elemental spirits, the way, the way people perceive it. Of course, there's always a spiritual element. There are always, that we don't see, right, the spiritual elements and forces that are opposing the things of Christ. So it's, it's because he's just talked about how great Christ is, 
He says, we've got these other forces out here, and they're also teaching, they're giving false things, and we have enemies, we have spiritual enemies, and so it would be those kinds of things. Be a, um, it, he uses this, if I'm not mistaken, he uses this expression once in his writings. And so that's what adds some of the... So what did he mean if he only used it once and only in this context? So that's part of the discussion, but certainly it'd be all that's opposed to Christ, both spiritual and human. Okay? Let no one disqualify, verse 18, insisting on asceticism. What does asceticism mean? You ever heard of the ascetic lifestyle? Think of a monk who denies himself basic food and clothing and habitation and other things. Ascetic, like you abuse the body. And worship of angels. We don't know exactly what that means, but there was something going on where they had a misunderstanding of the role of angels, which would, if verse 8 is dealing with elemental spirits in the spiritual realm, the, uh, the enemy, is this a wrong understanding of what angels are doing here? Going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reasoning, without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Basically, the test is, if anything is um, <clears throat> drawing your attention away from Christ, it needs to be strictly scrutinized and done away with if, in fact, it has become an idol that you've set up that now is competing with Christ. And that's a challenge, because there's a lot of good things that get turned into idols. But what becomes our ultimate reason, our ultimate purpose, our ultimate service, our ultimate goal? Okay? So, I need to look now at the original Greek, what was used in verse 20. It's the same as in verse 8, because now it's repeating what we just said. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, so in other words, basically the way the world generally operates, why is it if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? So it seems to be some type of way the world organizes itself about right and wrong and virtues and, and vices and these kind of things. So, do not handle, do not take, do not touch. We hear these today. Don't ever touch this. Don't ever do that. Don't ever eat the other. Don't ever drink the other. Don't ever whatever, 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 right? Which means, are we really staying rooted to grace and mercy? Or are we trying to go back to the law? Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that that's a case where self-discipline and stewardship is carried to extreme. It, you, you push it so far, it becomes a problem. Okay. We call that, according to wisdom, so wisdom will be using all things wisely and for good purposes, right? Right. Because Paul also tell, uh, he'll tell Timothy that God created all things for our enjoyment. Mm -hmm. The world was created to be lived in. The world was created with things for us to enjoy. And that is true. So that means the things that are created for us to enjoy, there is a proper way of using them in an improper way. And oftentimes we start to flip those things. You know, yeah. As you try to keep those, quote, Christian rules or yeah. expectations, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. Yeah. You're really, again, you take the focus off of Christ because you're, what is it that has made you holy? It's not those practices. Right, right. So, uh, here, all of a 
us have our lists in our minds that we operate on that we judge spirituality by? Some of them are informed by the scriptures and are good. Others are informed by tradition and could be done away with. Okay? And so we make our list. You know, we have our do's and we have our don'ts. And we, we start to make our list. And we say that this is the mark of spirituality. If I'm checking the box over here and I'm checking the box over here, I'm doing really well. Right? We're not ever so official as we actually do that. At least I don't think. Or we actually have a chart in front of us and we're checking it off. But in our minds, we're keeping track. Okay? And because we all have a unique set of experiences, we all have a unique set of upbringing, things maybe we heard from our parents, things that we heard somewhere else, that we accepted unscrutinized, that became part of the package, we tend to look at our own selves by our own standards and we say, hmm, doing okay. I passed the test. Right? And we always draw the line just on the other side of where we are. Okay? So if somebody is somewhere else on the other side of the line, they're not doing as well. And they need to get, get with the program. Okay? That also makes us judgmental of somebody else who doesn't meet our expectations. Right. Right. But even though they're in a learning process, yeah. but if they, they did that, it's like... Ugh. So, the Pharisees were in good company when we do that, because the Pharisees did that to Jesus. They called him a friend of sinners. He hangs out with drunkards and prostitutes. Okay? Jesus didn't change his behavior thereby. Did you notice that? He continued to do what he was going to do, because he had a higher purpose. And he knew the will of God. Okay? All Paul is saying here in chapter 2 is, why are you doing this? That's why he starts off by saying who we are in Christ. Then he goes on and talks about what Christ has done for us. In, in chapter 2, how he has led us in the victory parade. Remember how we talked about that last week in the middle part of chapter 2? And then we think we need to apply somehow our own standards to keep going on by our own standards. So here's the conclusion. He says, verse 23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They seem to be the wise things to do. But they are of no value stopping the indulgence in the flesh. Now we need to wrestle with that and not be quick to try to just push it away and say, well, we've got it all figured out. Maybe we haven't. We have to have borders. Huh? We have to have borders. I mean, an operating... Yeah. But we have borders that God has put. Yeah. Okay? Now notice, see... When I, we're forced to because of tradition now that we have chapter verses and, 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 and chapter divisions, I should say, verses, and so we can know what chapter 2, verse 3 says because we have them there. When Paul wrote this letter, those were there. So it was just one big letter. So he goes on from the end of chapter 2, and he goes on to chapter 3, but in his letter it was just the next paragraph where he says, don't get caught up in this. In other words, don't be a Pharisee. And I would add the word, don't be a fundamentalist in, this, in the worst sense of the word where you have gone beyond what is written to get a list that is outside of Scripture. Okay? I'm a fundamentalist in the sense that whatever the Bible says, man, I'm going to embrace it and the fundamentals of faith. But there is a form of fundamentalism that goes beyond this and, and institutes its own standards of judging believers by 
standards that they have created that are not in the scriptures. Could the Ten Commandments be the do's and don'ts of God as a guideline to us? Well, they certainly can, but that was given to a redeemed people, right? And so that means that because they are redeemed, this is how they will live. Because we are in Christ, this is how we will live. So don't, don't, get the, don't get it backwards and say, well, if I do these things, I'm going to be okay with God. No, because we are okay with God in Christ, now we do these things. That's the whole point that Paul is teaching. He's going directly against the human temptation of religion and wanting to do things in its own power. Okay? So Paul offers a better solution. He gets to chapter 3. After saying, don't do this in chapter 3, it's not as if there are no laws and boundaries. Chapter 3, he says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Indicative imperatives, right? He's going to give us a better way. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. That means now it's... In Romans, he'd say, be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Here he's saying, set your mind on the things that are above that are rooted in Christ. For you have... What? What's the next word? Verse 3. 2. Verse 3. For you have died. What is died? Dead. <laughs> what has died? Sin nature, self, our old way of living according to the principles of the world. We die. That self died in Adam. And your life is hidden in Christ's God. See, there's been a transference of influence now and of central focus in our lives. We're now hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So there's present hope, future promise, right? Because if he appears and we're going to be with him, that's a great promise. Okay? Now he's going to go on and talk about how we live this out. And it's not going to necessarily involve the man-made list, but it's going to involve that which is derived directly from the character of God and the principles of the gospel. Put to death what is earthly in you. We look at that and say, oh, what does that mean? That means whatever is operating according to the old way of living, according to Adam, according to the sin nature, according to the things that are contrary to the ways of God. Put to death those things. Stop living that way. And he gives us some examples. Okay? And I counted these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked. So there we are, we're all convicted. Right? We're all guilty when you're living them. But now what? You must put them all away. What should we put away? Well, there's a, there's a list here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another. It's the Ten Commandments right here, isn't it? Kind of hidden in there. Right? But now there's a foundation for living it out because we're hidden in Christ. And by the way, there's no difference. Whether you're this tribe or that tribe or this gender or that gender, whether you're a slave or a free man, it's all the same. Verse 11, right? Wrong Christ. Then, so put off this stuff that's according to the old way of living. It's like you're taking off your dirty clothes. Dirty clothes stained with sin, just rotten and worn out and ugly. And before God, out of fashion. Okay? Let's put on the new fashion in Christ. 
He's the ultimate wardrobe makeover type person, okay? <laughs> Complete new wardrobe now because we're in Christ, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Imagine if, because he's writing to a church, a group of believers. Imagine if a group of believers could get together and decide this is how they live. What would it look like? They decide when? To live according to Colossians 3. Taking off all the dirty clothes of wickedness, putting on the blood-bought clothes of righteousness of Christ. What would it look like? Heaven. heaven. <laughs> it would look like heaven. If it's done perfectly, that's what heaven will be like, right? Yet he's writing it to a church that is still very much on earth. He defines what it looks like. It's in 12 and 13. <laughs> he begins to say this is that's right. what you did. That's right. In other words, don't... If you're in Christ, don't think you can just wait until heaven to live this way. Start living like heaven on earth already. It shows unity. Huh? It shows unity. 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 Attractiveness. This would be an attractive community to be around. This would be great people to be around. Okay? And he's writing this to a church that was falling away in the false teaching, and he's saying, this is how I want you to live. Yeah. Okay, what if one struggles with the anger or the evil desires? Yeah. What if? Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Well, I mean, but like, no. how yeah, do you be sure that they're safe if they feel like they still have it? So, great question. And it's one that we've all been struggling with. So when we say, what if? It's like, well, since then, <laughs> since we all struggle with anger and malice and other things, how are we to live? That's the point. That's why we have to keep going back to the roots, the gospel. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. And we recognize that, oh, that's why I needed to be saved. That's why Christ came. So, I don't want Christ's work to be in vain. I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess my sins. And I'm going to turn to Him and say, would you cleanse me afresh? Would you work in my heart? Would you strengthen me for overcoming? And then, I want to put on the mind of Christ, which means if I'm approaching that point where I'm going to get angry, I have to think about, wait a minute, why am I getting angry? Well, usually I'm getting angry because the worship of moi is somehow being affected by something else, which means, oh, he says, die to self. Okay, Lord, you need to take control of the situation. And it's just daily. It's daily. That might sound discouraging. Oh no, that means I've got to struggle with my sin again today. But here's the hope. It's exactly what God commands, and exactly what God expects, and it's exactly what God has provided for. Already. In the context of the community of believers. Okay? That we are going to struggle. So let's struggle together. Didn't say that? Bear, bear with one another? Forbear with one another? Why do we need to forbear with one another unless some of us are bears? <laughs> right? <laughs> So we do need to forbear. That means that we have to live this out and apply it and work at it and confess to one another, ask for help, and pray. And we preach the gospel to ourselves in an ongoing manner. 
reminding ourselves of who He is and what He has done and what He has given so that we can live it out. Okay? Because every one of us is going to struggle. But that does not mean we surrender to the struggle. No. We've been given the weapons to win the struggle. Yeah. Well, and it also talks about teaching and admonishing one another, and I think that is the hardest thing. I'm just going to say for myself to do. How do I call someone out? You know, it's so much easier if someone's frustrated or angry to say, yeah, you have a right to be angry. I'd be angry too, you know? Yeah. And instead, what we're really supposed to do is be like, you know, I can tell you're really angry, but we really need to focus on Christ and, you know, a forgiving heart. I mean, whatever it is, boy, it's really hard to do that. And... It, it's hard to um, be open enough with one another to allow someone to say, Go, right. I love you, but you have the wrong attitude about yeah. this. That's hard. Yeah. Is it courage that we're lacking? I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so did Paul, as he wrote to this church 2,000 years ago. So the encouragement for us is there's nothing you want in the sun. So the temptations, struggles, frustrations, lack, weakness, whatever we think we're dealing with, we're not the first one. The Word's already been given to address those issues. And that's why we need to be a people that study the Word of God together. Yeah. It, you can go to the person who's uh, causing you grief. That's one way I can describe it. And if they don't listen, you can take someone else with you, or then you can take the elders. How does that fit into this? Well, and you're dealing with an issue of church discipline, which is... Is that what that is? is that, that yeah, and that would be more false teaching, rebellion against church authority, okay. living a life that is contrary to the gospel. That shouldn't be our first recourse when we say, okay, I went to you and you didn't listen, so the next thing I'm going to do is black it to the church. No, it's not what I mean. No, but it's, it's I, again, that's the process, that's where it eventually ends up. Right. Counselors. Yeah, that's part of what, see, we forget the community aspect of the body of Christ. We forget that all of us have a ministry or to have a ministry to one another and speak the truth in love, to challenge one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, love one another. And if we were doing that more and more in each other's lives within the context of life, in the office, in the neighborhoods, in the family, or whatever, there would be less reason to have to bring in the, the spiritual leaders of the church because the church would be living it out one with another. Because this command goes out to all, goes out to the whole church. So, yeah. So, don't you think transparency within the body? That's a, you know, I think about our ladies' Bible studies and stuff. And, and the things that we share there. And I just feel like any one of us could come to the other one. Okay. And that's a healthy situation. You know, I just yeah. think that's the yeah. healthy way to do it, that you love right. them, they're your sisters in Christ. And if I'm sinning, if they, if they see that, then by all means, come. And you admonish with love and pray with them. And, but, yeah, but you don't have to go in anger and gossip. You know, it's a one-on-one. So it says, you know, uh, forgiving one another, verse 13, verse 14 of chapter 3, and above all else put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Mm -hmm. If love, as God has shown us, is doing what's good and best for the other person, then if I see that other person doing things that are actually harmful to them, 
and harmful to others, then love goes and tells them. So this is this is not going to be helpful to you or to, to others. You need to you need to get a grip on this, you need to face this. Now, we live in a culture today, however, that does not want to listen to that kind of thing. We live in a culture today that says, unless you affirm everything that I do, you hate me. Okay? Well, that's just not by the way. And so we have to make a decision at that point. Are we going to live according to the ways of God, or are we going to succumb to the pressures of the culture? Because it is a loving thing to do, to tell an adulterer, adulterer that he's in a wicked way and is on his way to hell. It is a loving thing to do. It is not loving to just turn the other way, walk away, and watch them go off to eternal destruction. Not want to hurt them. Yeah. You're probably not going to give a loving response, though. <laughs> so, so the point is not necessarily, although we want to win the person, the point is to be a faithful witness to Christ. So, did people always accept Christ's rebukes? No, they didn't. Some left, some ran away, some got angry, some put them on a tree. Okay? That did not excuse him in any way from living out the truth of God. That's why he came. And he was willing to lay out his life completely so that others might live. See, we think so much in terms of what we have in the here and now as if that's all there is. But it's really nothing in comparison to what is to come. Right? And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. Because we... I know. I, I deal with the same struggles that you all deal with. Why? Because I'm made of the same stuff. Okay? And I know I need the gospel every day in my own life. I need to preach it. I need to hear it. I need others to speak to me. I'm, I'm pleased to have a group of elders around me that can do that. And I can do it to them. We need that. Okay? Uh, but we've got to do it. <laughs> Alright? So, this is what it would look like. Heaven. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 17. And give thanks. So if we were to be people of the Word, just spending time, right, loving each other, truthfully, focusing on the Word of God, and speaking it to one another, and giving thanks, we would live out these commands then in verses 1 to 12. Okay? That's a daily thing. And so, these commands are given in the second person, plural, you all. Okay? Which means it goes out to all of us. And then he'll go on in the next few verses and give specifics for marriage, for parenting, for work. And then he'll loop back and give readings and other things for application to all believers. But it makes a difference then. Um, we started out with all the false teachings and we ended up on just living out the true teachings. But that's okay. Because as we're living out the true teachings, we will more readily recognize the false ones. So it's easy for us to point it out. It came out over the weekend where some construction workers were doing some 
repair work at a megachurch in Houston, and they found $600,000 stuffed into a wall in a bathroom that apparently had been stolen from a safe six years ago or whatever it was. And we can look at that and say, just get right, buddy. It's easy for us to do that. But what about we reflect the mirror back on ourselves as the believers of, of Christ here in Northern California and how we behave and how we use our clientele and treasures? Would we be so quick to tisk tisk? Or would we be quick to try to justify? And Paul is saying, don't try to justify sin. Crucify sin, confess sin, forgive sin, and live working towards harmony in Christ. And we just we would feel really uncomfortable with that because it's a lot easier to sit home and watch the Hallmark Channel, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, okay. Somebody is listening. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fullness. He talks a lot about fullness in here. Fullness of the deity of Christ. In Him the fullness of God dwells bodily. And then he goes on and says, and we have that fullness. We are fully in Christ. That doesn't mean the fullness of deity dwells in us. It means we are experiencing what is available to us in Christ, who is able to reconcile all things and finish all things and accomplish all things. Okay? And we see that in verses chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see that? Fullness of God revealed in Christ, and he reveals in us, or to us, and we are in him, which is assurance of our eternal life. Okay? And then he gives ways for practically living out the way of Christ. And it'll take us a lifetime. So back to the question, what do you do when you deal with anger, malice, jealousy, divisions, uh, sinning against one another? Because it will happen. Uh, we look back and say, we need to remember who we are, whose we are, what has been accomplished, and what he wants us to do. Okay? So, that's the opportunity we have then. Well, as we have this up, uh, uh, the habit of doing is we get to each book, we look at the, um, the unique things of each book, and then we get to our key verses. What are some of the unique things in the book of Colossians that we've talked about? The high Christology. And if, if you want to have a verse or a passage to memorize in the new year, memorize Colossians 1, 15 and 20. As we hide God's word in our hearts, our minds become changed. We begin to think more like Christ. And it gives us things to think about. And there have been many times in my life where I've been in a situation, what do I do? I'm tempted or there's a struggle or there's difficulty. And the scripture that I have memorized is what comes flooding back into my mind at that point. It's the Spirit of God giving me the weapons and the tools that I need to win the battle in my mind at that point during my behavior. So we need to memorize the Word of God as a way of life. Okay? And so that might be one you want to consider. We, we've talked about the language of atonement in chapter 2, this 
He humiliated the enemies of the cross by leading them in the victory parade. You know, this is symbolic. This is what the Romans did. They would humiliate the conquered armies. This is what Christ did. He triumphed over them, making a spectacle of them on the cross. That there's this victory train that is the, those that are in Christ. And he's the leader and conquers all of his enemies. That's unique in Colossians. And then we have a great emphasis on the union with Christ. So what would be... Let's see if I can get this thing working. There we go. No surprise. Key verses, what I talked about in Corinthians... Uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And then our union and unity in Christ... In Colossians 3.11. Any thought, last thoughts on the book of Colossians? I have one about the unity of Christ and suffering. Uh, okay. Chapter or Colossians 1.24. Okay. Where it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay. So, uh, just part of the unity with Christ is also suffering with Christ. Okay, that's right. Suffering and suffering advances the cause of the, of the gospel. What verse 24 of Colossians is not saying is that Christ didn't do enough. It's not what it's saying. Okay? It's just saying as he is the head of the body, he is leading that body to represent him, and that will include suffering. And suffering is what causes the gospel to go forth. Often throughout church history, that has been the case. Okay? Paul goes on and says that I'm a minister according to the stewardship God has given me, and he, is, he has suffered. Okay? That we must be willing to die to self, to live for the purposes of Christ, and suffer so that the gospel will continue to go forward. That is God's designed and appointed way for the church to grow and advance. Um, that makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to consider the implications. But church history is full of examples of that's what happens. Um, I commend to you again the movie The Insanity of God if you've not seen it hear from our brothers and sisters around the world and how they are suffering for Christ's sake and considered a privilege to do so. And as a result, the light of the gospel continues to shine. Okay, other thoughts? Last thoughts on Colossians? Is the light of the gospel shining in America? Is it? Yes. <laughs> and pockets. In pockets. There, you know, there's. It needs to shine in every country, in every nation, in every tribe, in every area of the world. And so, you know, one day that will happen. But it's not yet happening. Okay. Let me tell you a little bit what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Next week we have a congregational meeting at this hour, so we'll meet next week. And then we have two weeks off where we're celebrating Christmas on the 19th. So at 10 a.m., we're going to have our worship service at 10 a.m. on the 19th. We will actually meet at 10 a.m. on the 26th. So we're taking a couple weeks off from the discipleship hour. And Lord willing, we will resume again that first weekend in January. Um, I think it's the second. Is that Sunday? Okay. We'll get back to a regular quote-unquote schedule. So... 
Uh, if you're able, uh, sit in on the congregational meeting next week, hear what's going on. Um, otherwise, invite some folks to come to the Christmas program and uh, get to spend time with them over the Christmas holiday. Okay? All right, why don't I pray us out of here? Pray a blessing over our Advent season that we would represent Christ well and tell us about the preeminence of Christ. Father, we thank you that you're so merciful and you're so good. We thank you for the letter to the church in Colossae. We thank you for the gift that it is from your Holy Spirit that we can be challenged by it all these years later. And Father, it is our heart's desire to embrace more fully the gospel and to just enjoy the fellowship we can have with you and your people as you bring us together in Christ. And we are mindful of how needy we are to have you continue to work in our hearts, our minds, our bodies, that we would be men and women, a body of Christ, that we want to serve you in a way that reflects the truth of this letter. So we are thankful that you are more than able to fill us and to control us and to lead us. And would you give us minds that are determined to break cycles of sin in our lives? Give us hearts that desire the beauty of Christ more and more. And give us hands and feet that are active in your service to proclaim the gospel to those around us and to serve them in Christ's name. Father, in this Advent season, we want to proclaim well who Jesus is, his preeminence, and that he is ultimately the Lord over all. And so may you help us display it in our own lives that we believe and we live as if Jesus is Lord over all. So that it will be this aroma of salvation that would flow from our lives to those around us. Oh, Father, be so pleased if you would desire to use us and that you would use us for your glory, for your kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, everyone. Have a great Christmas. I'll see you, uh, I'll see you around. Next. <laughs>